Okay, good morning. Welcome to the first session of the Jewish Study Network Ethics Seminar. So, this lecture is titled, Trolleyology Updated for Self-Driving Cars. Now, what is trolleyology? I hope there aren't any uh, model train aficionados who are hoping that we would discuss different types of trolleys around the world, because that, that's not what we're going to be talking about today, actually. So, trolleyology is the study of ethical questions typified by the trolley problem, which was first proposed by a British philosopher named Philippa Foote in 1967. The way she describes this problem, imagine you're driving in a trolley and the brakes have malfunctioned. To your horror, you notice ahead of you on the track five people tied to the rails. You have a split-second decision to make here. Do you continue on this track and kill five people, or do you divert toward the track towards your right, in which case there's only one person tied to that track? Right, so then you have to face with a choice here. Do you continue, default, you're going to kill five people? Or do you turn to your right, in which case you're going to end up killing only one person? But now you're going to be making an active choice to turn to your right to kill that one individual. In researching for this class, I read a review on psychology today for a book that goes through many of the different variations on this question. And the reviewer wrote, they are so diabolically complex as to make the Talmud look, look like cliff notes. <laughs> I think the reviewer hasn't studied that much Talmud, with all due respect to the reviewer. So that's the question that we're going to discuss today. First, we're going to go through some of the philosophers' solutions. Afterwards, we're going to go through some Jewish sources, and then we'll see where does the halachic response fall out. After that, we'll outline it for regular drivers, and then discuss, does anything change if we're talking about a programmer with a self-driving car? So we discussed the basic problem. Anybody want to offer their ideas, there's no judgment here in terms of what sort of person you are. Anybody want to offer their solution? Should we go to the right and kill one person or should we go straight and kill five people? Anybody want to throw it out there? Anybody? Nobody. Go ahead. You can't change direction. You can't, you can't change direction. Okay, so Chuck is going with a, a very nice conservative approach, which is that you cannot make the decision to actually consciously choose a person to kill. Anybody else? Yeah. You, you take the right turn, you go and kill the wrong person. Okay, good. So good. So we got people on both sides. We always like that. Okay, so Michelle is saying that we actually should turn to the right and kill the one person, right? So this is actually exemplified by the, the two different schools of thought of, of the philosophers, right? And they would, philosophers would say that this brings into sharp contrast the two schools of thought about morality in a complex world. We're going to get there in one moment. What was that? Another question. Right. Yeah, these are, these are all good 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 variations. Yeah, great variations. We're getting to the diabolical. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's complicated. So there's two different schools of thought amongst the philosophers. There's one school of thought which we call the utilitarianism perspective, and that says that the greatest amount of lives should be saved. And whether or not that includes actions, that doesn't make a difference. You save the greatest amount of people. So that would be what Michelle is, is proposing, that you actually should turn to the right and end up killing four people. However, the other school of thought would be... I'm sorry, one person. Yeah. Go ahead. One person, yeah. So there is the... Another perspective would be the deontological perspective. I never heard of this word till last week. Deontological... Some people are nodding, so I guess they did hear this word. Um, so deontological, we can sum it up as meaning actions that are considered in a vacuum and not considered for their results, right? Just to speak out a little bit more what that means. 
when we consider our actions based on the direct results and we don't take into account the alternatives that have been averted, that would be deontological conception. That would be saying, instead of figuring out, well, is this an action that will save more lives? We say, is this action in a vacuum a correct action to take? So currently, I am default. I am heading down the track. I'm not going to do anything. But what's going to happen is people are going to die. Five people are going to die. But if I make that right turn, I have now taken the action to take someone else's life. Right? So the deontological perspective would say, like Chuck would say, which is that, no, you should never do that. You should never take an action to take someone else's life. So those are the two perspectives that the philosophers have to offer. Now, I want to point out, how far do these two perspectives go? In other words, from a deontological perspective, in which we say that you should never do something that is, that is morally you know, suspect, right? So how far do they go with that? Let's say someone comes knocking on your door, the Nazis come knocking on your door, and they say, is Anne Frank hiding in this house? So a deontological perspective is forbidden to lie. It's morally suspect to lie. So would you not lie and say she is not hiding in my house? Seems a little strange to say that you wouldn't be willing to lie over there, right? And then from the utilitarianism perspective, let's say you have a situation. You have a famous world-class transplant surgeon who's working in Stanford Medical Center. And he has five patients, one of whom needs a new kidney, another one needs a new liver, another one needs a new liver, another one needs a new heart, another one needs, um, let's say, lungs, right? And he has, all five of these patients are going to die very shortly. A healthy person comes into the hospital who would be a great candidate for a transplant if only he was a motorcycle driver, but he's not. But they have him in the hospital right now, and they're ready to, should they kill him right now, and take his five organs and then save five people's lives. So if we take that Michelle's perspective to its logical conclusion, then perhaps we would say, yeah, it's even worth it to kill someone, to take and save five people, kill one person to save five people. Right, so that, that would be the logical extremes of these two different perspectives. And whether or not they actually go that far is, is a question for philosophers to, 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 to analyze. Okay. So let's deal with some other variations of this question and see which side they fall on. First, within the parameters of that very first scenario where you have a trolley heading down the track, we can tweak it a little bit. Let's say on one side of the track you have a baby. On one side of the track you have a 91-year-old person who's not really so with it anymore. Does that change the scenario at all? Let's say on one side of the track you have someone who's given a lot to mankind, a Nobel Prize winning physicist. On the other side of the track you have average Joe. What do you do over there? So once again, I think what we would say is that from the perspective of Michelle, I don't mean to make you kill people, but you would say that you go with the person who offers the greatest utility to the world. And therefore, even if that means making a decision to actually turn to the right and kill an individual, that should be done. Whereas, from the perspective of, of Chuck, you would say you can never make that decision. So even if you're heading, your default is to kill a baby, you should, unfortunately, kill that baby and not turn to the right and kill that 91-year-old who has a life expectancy of three months. Right? The deontological, we're never permitted to make that choice. Right? When we're talking about taking our, viewing our actions in a vacuum, you're never permitted to make that choice to actually kill someone. Let's talk about another scenario. Let's say you have a plane that's been hijacked and has hostages on it and it's going to kill many people, right? The hostages, this plane is going to crash either way. And the question is, do we shoot that plane down and save the other people's lives? And this is the story that actually happened. It happened on 9-11, the plane that went down to Shanksville, Pennsylvania, Flight 93, it was United, it was going from Newark to SFO. I've taken that flight, but never to 
Shadow Shanks of Pennsylvania. So after the first two planes crashed into the Twin Towers, there were two other planes that were hijacked, right? So one of which was Flight 77, and it ended up crashing into the Pentagon. So once those three planes had crashed, the National Guard scrambled F-16s. The F-16s did not even have time to arm with missiles. I read on, on, um, on the history website that Heather Penny and Mark Sassfeld, they got into those F-16s, they did not even have missiles in that F-16. So how are they going to take down that plane that they knew was headed either for the Capitol or for the White House? And the people on that plane were going to die either way. And the question is, should we take down this plane to save more lives down the line? And their option at that point was to do a kamikaze mission. And Heather Penny said that she made up with her commanding officer, this Mark Sassville, that he was going to crash into the cockpit, she was going to crash into the tail. And she remembers thinking to herself, are we going to eject right before we hit? And she said, we can't take that chance. We have to, we have to take our own lives to save so many people on the ground. And that was the decision that the, the government had actually come to. They never found that Flight 93. Todd Beamer, and together with the rest of his crowd, the Let's Roll crowd, they actually, we think they took the plane down. I spoke to a conspiracy theorist who told me that he has evidence that the, F, the FBI actually, the F-16 actually did shoot the plane down, but that, that's not something that I can verify. But either way, so the question over there is, is it worth it shooting down the plane when you know that these people are heading to actually kill other people? They're on a plane that is heading to take other people's lives. Are you permitted to shoot down that plane of people who are going to die anyways? Are you permitted to shoot it down to save the other lives? That's another, another variation. Two other variations would be, you have the Iron Dome today, right? So you have the Iron Dome. Is it permitted to shoot down a missile that's headed for Tel Aviv over a less populated area before it reaches Tel Aviv? Right, so normally the Iron Dome tries to shoot them down before it gets anywhere near populated areas. But let's say you have the option of shooting it down, it's over you know, some, somewhere in the south, but not as you know, urban area and not going to kill as many people as if it ends up reaching Tel Aviv. What should you do in that scenario? Should you shoot down that missile or not? The fourth situation, and this actually did happen in real life, my, the head of school that I went to in, in Yeshiva, uh, the dean of, he, he, uh, his father was 22 years old during the Holocaust, and he was asked this very question. The question is like this, there was the Judenrat. The Judenrat was the Jewish police and the Jewish governors of specific ghettos, let's say. So in the Warsaw Ghetto, they had the Judenrat, and the Judenrat would try to ensure some level of order and some level of social stability, but they worked in cooperation with the Nazis. And the Nazis would give them a list of people and say, you're going to have to provide us with this list of people. And if you don't, we're going to take two people for every person on that list. Are the Yudinrat permitted to do so? Right? So that's just another variation of the same question. Are you permitted to sacrifice the few to save the many? So the trolley question, like I said, was first posed by Philippe Foot, this British philosopher. Well before Philippe Foot, the Chazonish, Rabbi Baram Yeshayo Karelitz, who was a great Lithuanian Torah scholar, who was born in the, I think, 1870s, and he moved to Israel in the 1920s, died there in 1953, had discussed this very problem far before Philippe Foot ever thought, I mean, I shouldn't say before she thought, but before she published it in 1967. So let's start going through the Jewish sources. So let's open up our source sheet. If I could get some... No, no, I, I only... Yeah, if everybody could share in that way. Uh, so I'm going to call for volunteers to read the sources, and if there's no volunteers, I'm going to start calling on people. We're going to sacrifice the few to save the many. So anybody want to volunteer? Chuck, can I? Okay, thank you. So for our very first source that we have, what's that? You shall not murder. Very simple one, right? So where is this source from? It sound familiar to anyone? 
This is in the Aserat HaDibrot, right? This is in the, the ten utterances that God gives to us at Mount Sinai, right? And what does God say? He says, you shall not murder. Right? So clearly it is a sin to murder, right? That's the first thing that we want to establish. Point number two. Now we're going to turn to source two. Source two is the Mishnah Torah, foundations of the Torah. Mishnah Torah is Maimonides' magnum opus. Maimonides took all of the halacha that is found in all of the Talmud, and he broke it down in a very comprehensive, a very logical setup. In terms of the Gemara, it's stuff all over the place that you have to sort of pick and choose from different places in, in the Gemara, in the Talmud, to figure out what the halacha is. What Maimonides does is, he takes all of the different places that it's found in the Torah, in the Talmud, and he puts it down into halacha in a very comprehensive, logical, you know, genus, species, a very nice setup. So, second source, we have Maimonides talking about the laws of when you are permitted to violate the Torah to save a life. Any volunteers for this one? Okay, thank you, Chuck. If an idolater will force an Israelite to transgress one of the commandments of the Torah and threaten him with death for disobedience, it is mandatory that he transgress the commandment and be not transgressed, for it is said concerning the commandments, that which a man may do and live by it. Live by it, but not die for it. So Maimonides tells us very, very clearly that if there is anything in the Torah, any mitzvah in the Torah, Shabbat, you're not allowed to do, you're not allowed to drive a car on Shabbat. There are things you're not allowed to do on Shabbat. However, if someone's life is at risk, you absolutely have to drive that car. And if you say, well, I'm going to be very stringent and I'm not going to drive the car, Maimonides says his blood is on his head for having made that decision to do the wrong thing, right? So it's very, very clear. This is the halacha. You have to violate every t law in the Torah to save a human life. Human life is sacred. However, let's look at the second part of Maimonides, 2b. Where are these words directed concerning all other commandments, save idolatry, adultery, and bloodshed? For respecting these three commandments, if one will say to him, transgress one of the three or die, he shall die and not transgress. So Maimonides says there are three exceptions to this rule, and we call the three cardinal sins. And these three cardinal sins, even if it means losing your life, you are obligated to give up your life rather than violate these three laws. What are the three laws? Either idolatry, right, to, or adultery, illicit relations, or bloodshed, right, to actually take someone else's life, you are obligated to allow yourself to be killed. Now, what's the source for Maimonides to give this ruling? So let's look at source four. I'm sorry, source three. The, okay, uh, Leah, I'm going to call on you, sorry. Uh, this is in Pesachem, 25b. So this is the Talmud, Talmud Bavli. This is written about uh, 450, we're talking about 1,550 years ago about. And what we have over here is the source for Maimonides' ruling that one is not permitted to kill someone else to save their own life. Right? They're permitted to do anything except for killing one, killing another person, idolatry, or adultery. So let's see what the source is. With regard to a potential murderer, the halakha is that if one is being forced to murder someone else, he should allow himself to be killed and not transgress that prohibition. The Gemara asks, and from where do we derive this halakha with regard to murder? The Gemara answers, it is based on logical reasoning that one life is not preferable to another. The Gemara relates an incident to demonstrate this. This is similar to a certain man who came before Reva and said to him, a local official said to me, go kill so-and-so, and if I will not kill, uh, if not, I will kill you. Reva said to him, it is preferable that he should kill you and you should not kill. What did you think, that your blood is redder and more precious than his? Perhaps that man's blood is redder. Apparently, one may not save his own life by taking someone else's. 
And so this is the source for Rambam, for Maimonides' law, that you are not permitted to kill someone else to save your own life. Now, it's a very interesting source. The, the Gemara tells us Rava, who is one of the most famous Amorayim, right, the authors of the Gemara, so he lived about 400, about 400. So he tells us that, do you think that your life is more valuable? Is your blood redder than his? A very rhetorical approach, right? To say that is your blood redder than his? Who can judge the value of human life? And this is really, parenthetically, the idea that in Judaism there is no such thing as saying one person is more valuable than another. So to answer the variation that we said earlier, we would never say, well, there's one on one, one person on one track, one person on the other track. But one person's life, it's more valuable. We made an assessment, it's more valuable. No such thing in Judaism, right? All life is sacred, all life is valuable. Go ahead, Shai. So, but it, is it something for Jews that's a good question. We'll, we'll discuss that afterwards. That's a good question. Okay. Okay, so let's look at... So, okay, so now what have we established so far? What we established so far is you're forbidden to kill, and that's the one exception to the rule that you're never permitted to violate the Torah, even to... You're not permitted to violate the Torah to kill someone else under any circumstances. Go ahead. There's definition between kill and murder. There's definition... Def, different We're going to get there. That's a good point. That's a good point. Tirzach. Right. That means one way of murder. Yeah. And Tarog. Uh, We're going to get there. We're going to so get there. So the Torah, when you say it, is still tough. That means the most severe. Yeah, so we're going to get there. We're going to get, we'll get to that very point. Jonathan, you had a question? Okay. The same point. Good questions. So, so the only thing that the, the Gemara that I brought down discusses is the actual murder. But the other two, we can discuss that afterwards. Let, let's, we'll discuss that afterwards. Okay. Okay, so now we just established that you're not permitted to kill anyone. However, let's go look at source 4, because source 4 kind of changes the calculus. What does source 4 tell us? This is the Torah portion of this previous week, Parshat Mishpatim, right? This previous Torah portion. And what does it say over there? Rina, can I ask you? Yes. If the thief is seized while tunneling and he is struck and killed, there is no blood guilt. So here's the law that the Torah tells us. If you have someone who's tunneling into your house, right, and he's coming into your house to steal from you, and you end up killing that person before he comes into your house, you're exempt from any punishment. And the obvious question is, why are you exempt from punishment in this scenario? So, the way the Talmud explains is like this. When a thief is tunneling into your house, he understands that people like their personal property, and people don't want their personal property to be taken away from them. So if someone's coming into their house, if I'm coming into your house, and I know that you're going to want to protect your property, Right? I'm coming and I'm ready to actually kill that person to take his property. So the homeowner, stand your ground, castle doctrine, what, what, what have you, is able to say, you know what, this guy's ready to kill me. So if I don't kill him first, he's going to kill me. And therefore you're permitted to kill him. We have a lawyer in the room, okay? So isn't there a question of intentionality here? Because it says if he's, he's seized while tunneling and he's struck and killed, right? And so, meaning, you meant to stop him. You meant to whatever, arrest his effort, but you didn't need to kill him. We'll get there, took, we'll get there, good question. Even good if question. you took a two by four and you smacked him, right. your, your intent was to stop him from stealing, but your right. intent wasn't to kill him. I wouldn't take a two by four, I would take a crowbar personally, but yeah, but yeah, I, I get your point. Yeah, we'll get there, we'll get there. No, if you took something you know is going to result in death, Baseball bat, yeah. Issue. Okay, okay, so we'll get there, we'll get there. That's another well, point. There's that a risk, there's a, even in the law, 100 percent manslaughter versus murder. We're going to get there, that's something else we'll get to, yeah. Okay. So that's the, the Pasuk in the Torah, the verse in the Torah that gives us this, this idea. So now let's look at source 5, turn the page now, 
And source five is, once again, Maimonides, how he, how he codifies the laws in his Mishnah Torah, in his comprehensive version of all the laws of the Talmud. Uh, can I call on any of Jonathan, you want to take that away? Thank you. Yeah. When, however, a person is pursuing someone with the intention of killing him, even if the pursuer is a minor, every Jewish person is commanded to attempt to save the person being pursued, even if it is necessary to kill the pursuer. If it is possible to save the pursued by damaging one of the limbs of the rodef, one should... Oh, sorry, rodef means pursuer. Rodef is the Hebrew word for pursuer. Thus, if one can strike him with an arrow, a stone, or a sword, and cut off his hand, break his leg, blind him, or in another way prevent him from achieving his objective, one should do so. There is no way to be precise in one's aim and save the person being pursued without killing the rodef. Pursuer. Uh, one should kill him even though he has not yet killed his victim. Right, so, so basically, to, so to answer Ike's question, if the only way to prevent this murder from taking place, this fellow who's coming to kill you, the only way to prevent this is to actually take his life, then you are permitted to do so. However, if there are other ways to stop him, right, and you choose to kill him, we'll see that the, the, the dynamic changes drastically. Go ahead, Jonathan. Anyone who can save and does not save <coughs> transgresses do not stand by the blood of your neighbor. So this is a verse in the Torah. The Torah tells us, Lo tamod al dam Do not stand idly by on your friend's blood. And this comes to teach us that if someone is drowning, you're obligated to jump in and try to save them. This comes to tell us all of these set of laws that it's important for us to try to help our fellow person when they are in need. Now, if you have the opportunity to save someone else, and you say, you know what, I don't want to take another life. And you watch idly, and this person actually comes and kills the person who has been pursued. This is not a very light idea, right? You've taken the choice, I don't want to get involved, but that's not the right thing to do. You actually do have to get involved, and we'll see how the Rambam discusses it. This is very serious, since every person who kills a soul from Israel is considered as having destroyed the entire world, and every person who sustains slash establishes one soul from Israel is considered as having established the entire world. So what we see here is a very, very strong language, and this is borrowed from a, a Talmud in, in Sanhedrin, this idea that saving a life is considered to have saved the entire world, destroying a life is considered to have destroyed the entire world. So it's up to us to choose in that moment what we should do, but the halacha certainly determines that one should do whatever they can to save that life. Go ahead. Is it the, uh, only for Jewish people? We'll, we'll talk about that later. We'll, we'll talk about that later, also. Okay. So, so what we see over here is a very interesting idea. We see over here is if someone is pursuing someone else, and you have the opportunity to save that person's life, right? But you have the opportunity to save them, and the only way to save them is through killing the pursuer. You are obligated to kill the pursuer. If you have the ability to save them through not killing the pursuer, and you do kill the pursuer, that itself is a capital punishment. Right? So there's a very fine line here between an act of saving and an act of killing. Right? So depending on, do you have the ability to save otherwise? That would be an act of killing. If you don't have the ability to save otherwise, you're obligated to do so, and it's considered to have saved the entire world. Go ahead, Howard. How do you factor in the risk of stopping the pursuer in other means than killing? Because if yeah. you try these other yeah. approaches, you may get killed. It's a good question, yeah. Risky. Yeah. Yeah. So, so when it comes to this scenario, what we say is that when it comes to taking any risk, you're not obligated to take any risk. So you have to be certain. You have to be, uh, you know, um, SBHDS, South Peninsula Hebrew Day School, currently has a, they got a new armed security guard who I think served in the, the 101 for two tours in, in Afghanistan. I think he has the ability, you know, if he took out his pistol, God forbid, if someone's coming, he probably could shoot someone in the leg and he'll know that he'll take him out. 
right? Most of us, if we had a gun, I don't know, I mean, I'm looking around, actually Ron is a, is a marksman too, but most of us would not have the ability, and we should, we should shoot to kill, right? We don't have the ability to shoot, oh, we're going to shoot the elbow, we're going to shoot the, no, you shoot to kill. You can't take a risk, right? We have to be stringent when it comes to these matters, to saving people's lives. But yeah, that's a good point also. Okay, so up until now we have been discussing actively taking someone else's life. If one owns life, one, if one's own life is at risk. How about when it isn't actively taking someone else's life, rather just playing a role in handing someone over to be killed, more like the case of the Judenrat, handing over a Jew to the Nazis. So let's look at source six. Any volunteers? Emily? Thank you. Okay, so this is a Mishnah. The Mishnah was written, it was, it was finally redacted about 230 or so. So we're talking over 1800 years ago, this, or around 1800 years ago that this was finished. And the Mishnah tells us that if there's a group of women, and one of these women, a group of women, and there are these people come in, and they say, we want to have our way with one of these women, you are not permitted to give over one woman. And even though it means that every single one of them will now be taken advantage of, you're still not permitted to give over any individual. So to answer, I don't remember who asked this question, in terms of, well, do you have to be actively involved? Or even if you're not so actively involved, it's still not permitted, we see from here. And the Gemara, now we're going to look at Source 7, which is the Jerusalem Talmud. Yeah, go ahead, Jonathan. Again, does this apply only to Jews? We'll discuss that later. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like We'll discuss that. that. That's a good question. So in terms of women or men, no, it does not just apply to, to women as opposed to men. And not only that, um, we're going to see that this, the Jerusalem Talmud extrapolates from here to a case of murder. Right? So now we're talking about someone having their way with someone else. But now we're going to extrapolate from there to a case of actual murder. So let's look at that source 7. I'm looking around. Any unlucky volunteers? Leia, I guess that's you again. Okay, Jerusalem Talmud. It is taught, caravans of Jewish people that were on a journey and met idol worshippers who said, give us one of your groups so that we may kill him, otherwise we will kill all of you. Even if the entire group of Jews will be killed, it is forbidden to give up a single Jew to be killed. So the Jerusalem Talmud derives this from that Mishnah and says the same way this conversation applies when someone is being sacrificed to save the rest in terms of having their way, not for death, but the same thing applies when it comes to death as well. So there's a caveat here. And we're going to look now at source... I guess the second part of, of source seven. But if they demand a specific Jew by name, such as Shabbat ben Bithri, they give that person up and are not killed. Sezer Shimon ben Lakish. This only applies if the person specified had a death penalty upon him, like Shabbat ben Bithri. And Rabbi Yochanan disagrees and says even if he does not have a death penalty upon him, they give up the specified individual. Okay, so here what we have is the story of Shabbat ben Bithri. So who is Shabbat ben Bithri? So the the prophets tell us in Samuel 2, the prophets tell us that Shabbat ben Bechri rebelled against King David. And Shabbat ben Bechri was taking refuge in a city. And King David. And he's taking refuge in a city. And King David and his armies come to that city and they say, give up Shabbat ben Bechri who has rebelled against us. And if you don't give him up, then we're going to have to kill the entire city. And they gave up Shabbat ben Bechri. And the Jerusalem Talmud says that we see from here that is permitted to give up someone if he's been singled out by name. Now, what we're going to see, that that's agreed upon by everybody. So up until now, what we were talking about is they're asking us to make the decision who to kill. We can't play God. But when they make the decision who to kill, then it is permitted for us to give up that individual. However, 
still subject to dispute. Exactly under what circumstances it is permitted to do so. So let's see the end of the Jerusalem Talmud. Oh, sorry, you read it already, yeah? Okay, so the, what, what the Jerusalem Talmud tells us is a dispute between Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish and Rabbi Yochanan, who are very famous, uh, they, they argue with each other quite often. They were chavrutot, they learned with each other together, they were actually brothers-in-law as well. When Rabbi Lakish dies, Rabbi Yochanan basically dies, he, very shortly afterwards, Rabbi Yochanan himself dies, because he says, if I no longer have my chavrutot, what's the point of living? That's his attitude about life. They, they had a tremendously close relationship. They also, however... They, they were at loggerheads quite often in, in the Talmud, both in Jerusalem Talmud and the Babylonian Talmud. So Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish's opinion is that you're only permitted to give over that named individual if that named individual is actually subject to the death penalty. Now, what sort of action did he do that made him subject to the death penalty? So most... Oh, good, good. So, so most people will understand that the only sort of action that we're referring to here is the type of action that on a secular court level, the obligation is death penalty. The requirement for this, for this punishment is death penalty. Um, so, but Rabbi Yochanan comes along and says, no, that, that's not necessary. As long as they specified a single individual and they named him by name, you have to give him over to save the rest of the people. So that is source number seven. Hey, go ahead. So, so I would say, according to Rabbi Yochanan, perhaps yes. Right? According to one opinion, perhaps yes. According to Rish Lakish, once again, unless he actually is obligated, he himself has done actions that cause him to incur the death penalty, no, it would not be. You would not be able to give him up. But let's see how the Rambam, let's see, once again, we're going to go to Maimonides in source 8. Let's see how Maimonides says, how does this come out? Does Maimonides go with Rish Lakish's opinion? Or does Maimonides go with Rabbi Yochanan's opinion? <coughs> Anybody want to volunteer? Russ, go ahead. If idolaters will demand one of a group of women and saying, yield us one of among you and we will defile her, if not, we will defile you all, let all be defiled rather than surrender to them one soul in Israel. Okay. Now, likewise, if idolaters will say to a group of men, yield us one of you and we will kill him, if not, we will kill you all, let all of them be killed rather than surrender to them one soul in Israel. Right, so a very crucial point right here. What's the case over here? They're saying, give us one individual or else we will kill all of you, including that individual. So that individual is also going to die either way. Nothing's going to change whether you give him over or not. He's going to die. The question is, are you also going to die too? Okay, let's continue. If, however, they single out the one saying, give us that man, if not, we will kill you all. If he be guilty of a capital crime, as for example, uh, Sheva, son of Bikri, they may surrender him to them. But we do not advise them to do so. So this is based on an enigmatic passage in the Jerusalem Talmud. In, in essence, what happens is there is a fellow who gives up an individual in Amora. And this Amora, the Amora is a sage who explicates the, the Talmud, one of the authors of the Talmud. And what happens is he gives up an individual who's obligated in the death penalty. And what ends up happening is Elijah, the prophet, used to visit him, and he no longer visits him. So he asks Elijah, why did you stop visiting me? And he says, you didn't do the right thing. It's true you're allowed to do that, but you shouldn't do that. So it's some sort of in-between type of idea. That technically you're allowed to do that, but it's not recommended. So that's why Rambam says, Maimonides says, you should not tell other people to do that. If they know the law, they can do so. But if not, they should not do so. Even in the case of someone who is subject to the death penalty. Go ahead, Howard. How does that relate back to your initial, one of your initial examples? Uh, 
World War II, the Jews who were the police right. in the different, and they were turning over the people that they were requested. Otherwise, they would have taken different ones. Right, it's a good point. We're going to get there. We're going to get there also. Thank you, though. Okay. Okay, so, so we see that source 8, the Rambam, Maimonides, Paskins, it follows the halachic opinion, like Rish Lakish, that even so, we don't sacrifice one person unless he deserves to die. And even in a case where he will end up dying either way, we do not take any action to cause him to die. Remember, they're not actually killing him themselves. They're just handing over that individual to the, let's say, the Roman, whoever was in charge at that point, is going to end up killing that fellow. Okay. Did we not finish reading? Okay, let's finish reading. If he be not guilty of a capital crime, they all must submit rather than surrender them once over. Right, so this is the opinion of Eishlakish that even if they single out an individual by name or let's say by height or by looks, whatever it might be, you're not permitted to hand them over unless he himself is subject to capital punishment for whatever he has done. Go ahead, John. Does it not matter what he is actually being accused of? Yeah, so it does matter. It does matter. Good point. So it can't be that the Roman governors just decide, you know what, today's a Sunday morning. You know what, let's go take a Jew and kill him. We'll throw him to the lions. Well, why not? That's a fun thing to do. That's not going to work. It has to be that he did something that by secular law that's already a statue, that is a death penalty punishment. Why secular law? So, okay, so we're going to get there. But we won't get there, but we'll talk after us, okay? That's a good question, though. Okay. So... Yeah, yeah. So, afterwards, we'll talk afterwards. Okay, good question. Okay, so now let's look at the, the Kesef Mishnah. The Kesef Mishnah is one of the main commentaries on the Rambam. The Kesef Mishnah was actually written by Rav Yosef Cairo. Anybody know who Rav Yosef Cairo was? Go ahead, Shimon. Exactly. So, so, so Shimon, as a, as a Svardi, knows the answer. And the answer is that the Kesef Mishnah is the author of the Shulchan Aruch, which is our main, main book for, for halacha, it was written in the late, uh, mid-1500s, right? The Kesef Mishnah lived, the Rabbi Yosef Cairo lived in um, Constantinople, and then he moved to, uh, to Tzfat in the 1500s, and he wrote this incredible book we call the Shulchan Aruch, that's our main source for halacha. And then for Ashkenazim, we have the additional source, the Haggah, Ramosha Moshe who lived in Krakow around the same time. So, the Kesef Mishnah also wrote a commentary on the Rambam, and he asks a very powerful question on the Rambam. Let's look at source 9. Any volunteers? Looking at Joe, he's saying no. Okay, Joe, go ahead. How could Resh Lakish say that even when they pick an individual out of the crowd and say they want to kill him, that we are still forbidden to give him up? According to the Gemara in Sakhim, the reason we are not permitted to choose a specific individual to kill is because who told you that your blood is red? In Resh Lakish's case, whether or not you get involved, this individual is going to die. Therefore, you are not making the choice that his blood is not as red as yours. Everybody understand the question? The question over here is like this. This individual is going to die either way, right? So I'm not making any choice that his blood is not as red as mine, and therefore I'm killing him. I didn't make that choice. The Roman governor made the choice that they're going to kill him either way. So the, the Talmud of Sachem tells us, what's the source for the idea that you're not permitted to kill someone else? Who told you that your blood is redder than his? I never made any choice that my blood is redder than his. I know he's going to die either way. So I may as well save myself then, if he's going to die either way. What was that? But you also have an obligation to save someone. So the way the Talmud sets it up is not really that. The way the Talmud sets it up is technically you're permitted to violate everything in the Torah. However, when it comes to killing someone else, you're not permitted to do that because who told you that your life is more valuable than his life? Well, if he's going to die anyways, then why should we both die? 
the, the, okay, so that's a good question. Remember, we're in a hypothetical here. We're in a thought experiment. So, I have some questions. Yeah. If someone... You know, you know, choose, choose, we're running out of time. So let's hold questions now till the end, and then afterwards we'll, we'll, we'll go through questions. Okay, so, but this is the Kesev Mishnah's question, Rabbi Yosef Kaira's question, that the idea of my chazis, that who told you hers, his blood is redder than yours, or your blood is redder than his, that should not hold true when we know he's going to die anyways. That is his question. So why wouldn't we go back to the default that one is permitted to violate the Torah to save lives? So the Kesev Mishnah of Yosef Cairo answers, when the Gemara told us this idea that who is to determine whose blood is redder, that is not the real source for the prohibition to take someone's life to save one's own. It was actually known to them, handed down through tradition, that one is always forbidden to play an active role in causing the death of a fellow Jew, unless he is actually subject to the death penalty by secular law, in which case he is considered to be a pursuer, and therefore he should be stopped or killed if necessary. In other words, if someone did an action that caused him to be subject to the rules of death penalty by secular law. He is endangering the rest of us by his presence in our city. And therefore, what does he fall into? He falls into the category of someone who is pursuing me to kill me. Therefore, I am permitted to actually kill him if necessary, and I'm also permitted to hand him over. That is how the Kesev Mishnah understands what the position of Reish Lakish is, why you are permitted to hand someone over when he is someone who has been singled out, specified for having done a specific action. Okay, so to recap, we're not allowed to kill. We have to give up our life rather than kill. Someone who is endangering the lives of others must be stopped, even if it means taking the pursuer's life, if that is the only means necessary. If he can be stopped a non-lethal method and he is killed, that is no longer an act of saving lives. That's an act of murder, which would carry capital punishment. Cannot be involved in causing the death of others, even in an indirect fashion. Cannot give up one person to save the life of many. If, however, they specify a specific person who is deserving of the death penalty, then you're permitted to do so. If they specify one specific person who is not deserving of the death penalty, according to the opinion of Reish Lakesh, and as Maimonides codifies in Halacha, we all have to die. Based on everything, what do we do on the trolley question? What's the law? We don't steer it off the tracks. You do not steer it off the track. Chuck is right. You do not steer it off the track. Michelle is wrong. You cannot do that. You're not permitted to do that because then you're taking an action to kill one individual. You're not permitted to do so based on everything that we saw until now. However, the Chazonish... I mentioned before, Rabbi Rami Shayo Karelitz, who lived in Israel, Lithuanian uh, Torah scholar who moved to Israel, he asks a question that fundamentally changes our view of this entire topic. He discusses a hypothetical case of an arrow that is currently aimed at a group of five people. And I have the opportunity to deflect the arrow and thereby change the trajectory so that instead of killing five people, it will kill only one individual. What is the law in that question? That's the question that he asks. This is not a, such a hypothetical, because the case of actually arose during World War II. There was a German spy ring consisting of double agents, British double agents, that were supplying the German government with information concerning the areas in which V-1 and V-2 rockets were falling. Towards the end of the war, the Germans kind of were, you know, didn't have such a great chance anymore, but they had their rockets, and they were sending their rockets to London, and they were creating a tremendous amount of, of terror, and they were killing people. So it was proposed that the double agents transmitting information to the German military report that most of the rockets had fallen well north of London so that future rockets would be aimed a number of miles to the south. The purpose was to assure that future rockets would fall in Kent or Surrey where there would be far fewer casualties than in London. The proposal was reportedly placed before the cabinet by Herbert Morrison, the Home Secretary. Churchill was abroad at that time, but the cabinet rejected the proposal on the grounds that the British government was not justified in choosing to sacrifice unendangered citizens in order to save others. Despite the cabinet veto, the deception team continued with their efforts to trick the Germans into correcting the aim and range of the German rockets. Morrison, with furious indignation, once again brought the matter before the cabinet. He is reported to have exclaimed, Who are we to act as God? 
Who are we to decide that one man shall die because he lives on the south coast while another survives because he lives in London? Right? So that was, not just hypothetical, that was a real question, and Morrison at least fell out on the side that you're not permitted to do so. So what does the Chazanish go with this question, right? deflecting that missile? He explains that perhaps the only question here is, are we doing an act of saving lives which will ultimately cause someone else to die? Or are we doing an act of killing an individual which will save lives? Yeah? So if you understand that you're doing an act of saving lives that will ultimately, consequentially, cause someone else to die, perhaps that's okay. But if you're doing an act of killing someone to save other lives, that's never okay. That's how the Chazanish understands it. Now, so based on this Chazanish, at this point in the Chazanish, what would we understand? Are you permitted to turn the trolley to the right? Is that an act of killing or is that an act of saving? I would think that might be an act of saving, and perhaps the Chaznish would agree that you're permitted to do so. However, if you read the whole Chaznish, Chaznish is not so short, and you read the whole thing, he goes a little bit further, and he says, maybe this isn't true. In the case of handing someone over to the enemy, right, that we talked about in the Jerusalem Talmud, you're not actually killing anyone yourself. You're just causing that this person will end up dying. In the case of a missile, you're, you yourself are complicit in actually changing the trajectory and after your final action, everything is done. It's set up now to kill an individual. So you're more actively involved in killing the individual. So perhaps that's worse. On the one hand, maybe it's better, right? Because it's an act of saving as opposed to handing someone over, which is an act of killing that individual, which will save the rest of us. On the other hand, maybe it's worse because now you're actively involved in pointing the arrow in the direction of individuals. Chaznish ends off with a, what we call a safek. He's not sure what the halacha is over there. The Rabbi Eliezer in Waldenburg, who lived in the, from 2000, ni- sorry, 1915 to 2006 in Jerusalem, so he wrote like this. He said what we call as when it comes to a question of doing something wrong in a way that is active or doing something wrong in a way that is passive, it is always better to do something wrong in a way that is passive. And it is absolutely forbidden. He talks about this very case. He talks about a driver in Haifa who's coming down a hill in Haifa, and his brakes fail. And he's heading straight down to kill five people. And the driver swerves out of his way to kill one individual. And afterwards, this driver's feeling awful about it. And he goes to ask, I need to, do I need to do tshuva? Do I need to repent for what I have done? So Eliezer Waldemark says, absolutely. You need to do tshuva. It was not, for, not permitted for you to do so. You cannot take the action to swerve out of the way. It was a decree from heaven that those five people should be in the way of your car when your brakes failed. And you took that choice to turn to the right, not, not permitted, and you have to do teshuvah. So Eliezer Waldenberg will take a definitive path that you are not ever permitted to turn to the right to kill other individuals. You have to go straight, even if that means killing more people. That seems to be a halakhic answer to the trolley question. Yeah? Now let's go back to the airplane. Let's see if this airplane coming and that airplane is heading to kill other individuals right now. Are you permitted to shoot down that airplane? Or in the case of, of the two National Guard pilots, not to shoot it down, but to actually crash into the airplane and cause it to come down. Are they permitted to do so? Any, any uh, ideas? Anybody? That's an interesting point. In this case, they're going to die anyway. That's an interesting point. But based on what we said earlier, Maimonides says that even if they're going to die anyways, you still can't hand them over. Right? Unless they are deserving of the death penalty. We're making believe. For the, for the thought experiment, we're making believe they're going to die. So, so I think the answer is that the, the difference over here is like this. That plane is currently heading to kill other individuals. So that plane is now classified as a, a rodev, as pursuer. And therefore, you are permitted to take any action necessary to stop that plane from killing other individuals. And perhaps you would be permitted to shoot down that plane. Now, let's update it for self-driving cars. We're, we're after the class. 
Generally speaking, this thought experiment is just that. It's a thought experiment, right? Hypothetical questions, they're not so relevant, they're very rare. Additionally, I think most people in this room would probably, and I include myself, we would just freeze and do whatever is the easiest thing. We wouldn't, we wouldn't, not actually making a thought at that process, at that step in the game, fight or flight, fight or flight, there's nothing. There's, there's nothing left at that point. It's just whatever we feel is easier, that's what we're going to do. However, now that we have self-driving cars, this question has moved from the theoretical to reality. How does one program a self-driving car in advance? Because then you're not faced with an adrenaline rush to try to figure out how to save your life in the easiest way possible. The question is, what do we do? What do the programmers, what are they supposed to do? So I went to visit Phantom Auto. Phantom Auto is a remote-operated uh, remote operated um, driving car solution. Shai Maximoff is in the back right here, is the, the founder and CEO of Phantom Auto. Shai was named as uh, 30 under 30 by Forbes recently. And I went to visit him to find out what does he tell his operators? What should they do in this situation? Are they supposed to turn the car? Right? So you have a remote operator who's going to make the decision now. The car is a self-driving car and it's driving down the road. It's about to hit five people. Is the remote operator supposed to make the decision to turn the wheel or not? So I asked Shai and Shai said, well, I'm a CEO. I don't really bother with such things. So he, said, he brought in his, uh, his uh, director of operations, Kevin, I forget his last name, Kevin. Oh, Eric, okay. So. I asked Eric, what's the deal? What do you in instruct your, uh, your drivers? What should they do in this scenario? So he said, you know, I never thought about it, but I'm going to go with the utilitarianism method, that I'm going to say to save more lives is, is, is primary and crucial, and therefore you should turn to the right if necessary to kill other people. What was that? Minimize, minimize the outcome, yeah. Minimize possible outcome, even if that means taking an active role. I told him that he should probably listen to the, to the class and make his decision after listening to the class, but I don't know, I don't know where Shai's going to fall out on that. Now, I also spoke to a fellow, a Iran Sandhouse, who couldn't be here today, he's in Israel, and he is an autonomous vehicle consultant. He's also an angel investor in J Angels. Previously, he worked as the VP in charge of worldwide operations regarding self-driving cars at one of the major car companies. So, he pointed out to me immediately there's three differences between self-driving cars and human-operated cars. Humans look straight ahead. When you're in trouble, you always look straight ahead, right? You get tunnel vision, right? You literally you have blinders on. You cannot see to your right. You cannot see to your left because you're just like, I got to figure out what to do right now, right in front of me. You don't turn to the right or left. Self-driving cars have the sensors on all directions, and they can actually, they might be able to figure out, should I go to the right, should I go to the left, right? They might be able to do that in a way that humans would not be able to do. Number two, humans cannot know the exact angle of impact that will protect the most possible people, whereas computers have enough data points that they can actually make that decision and decide, you know what, I'm going to go at a 46 degree angle into a parked car and the earbag will deploy and everybody will be safe that way. And that's something that humans don't have the ability to do right now. Third point that he pointed out is that self-driving cars can predict very well based on the seatbelts, are the seatbelts on, are the seatbelts off, the sensors in the car, is the person sitting up, is the person leaned over. They can actually predict based on that how much damage will occur and use that decision, use that, uh, that information to help that decision-making process. He also pointed out one more thing that's very important to know. Different companies have different priorities, right? In some companies, the priority is going to be the consumer, the end consumer, the individual who's driving that, who's not driving, the individual who's sitting in that car, the passenger who's sitting in that car that's being driven. Right? So their priority is to ensure that that passenger does not get harmed. You have other companies that you have someone, let's say, the city of San Jose is, is putting out a contract for autonomous buses. Right? Their priority is the citizens of San Jose. So if you have seven people on that bus and you have 20 people in front of that bus, they're going to choose to protect the people in front of that bus. Whereas if you're prioritizing the consumers, the, the, in, the passengers on the bus, then you're going to prioritize killing the 20 people. That's another interesting idea that 
it, it comes into the into the equation. So what would be the what would be the actual end game? Do we say that anything is different when you're talking about a self-driving car, someone programming a self-driving car? So based on what we said earlier, the Chazonish, I think it might be easier to say that when you're talking about programming a self-driving car in advance, it's a lot easier to say that that is an action of Hatzalah. That is an action of saving lives. You're programming the car five years in advance of this ever occurring. That might be an action of saving lives. And incidentally, people might die. But that's an action which saves lives. And perhaps the Chazonish would say over here, you are permitted to program the car to make the decision to kill the fewest possible people. Because that's not an action of killing at the time that you're actually writing the program. I asked a, uh, a Rosh Hashiva, a dean of a school on the East Coast, I was just there last week, and I asked him, and he agreed. He agreed that that is what the Chazonish conclusion would be. I want to finish with two points. So two points that we can take away from today's classes. First of all, the sanctity of human life. Right? We're all equal, whether it's an old person, a young person, whether a Nobel Prize winner, whether an average Joe, everybody's equal in, 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 Jewish, in, in, in Jewish lives, and therefore, Jewish eyes, and therefore, no matter what, you can't choose, prioritize one person over the other, which I think is an important point to keep in mind today, given, you know, maybe Medicare for all might not prioritize things exactly the same way. Also, we are in a, a brave new world today, right? We have technology is growing by leaps and bounds. I don't think we're close to the taking over of the machines. Many people are writing about the taking over of the machines. I don't think we're that close yet, but we might get there. But there are certainly many situations where it's critical to have a moral compass for many different aspects of the technological revolution, cloning, any sort of medical research, genetic, engineering. But in truth, it's actually rare to find any aspect of life where it isn't necessary at some time. Or rather, to engage in deliberations of a cost-benefit analysis. I'm not just referring to a financial cost-benefit analysis, but even a moral question. Whenever we reach that nexus of a moral question in terms of technology advancing, we have access to an incredibly rich tradition which has been grappling with these questions for thousands of years. When we have an absolute moral compass that's given to us by God, we can always steer in the right direction. Thank you.